on this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I bring in pro punter Pat McAfee. Just kidding. We bring in pro punter Luke Payton, not the type of punter that I was alluding to. When we talk about the industry as a whole, Luke is one of the most knowledgeable people about the sports betting industry, having been at Betfair and having been a pro punter for the last few years. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast, bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Welcome to another episode of the Betha Process podcast, where Rufus and I are celebrating our Calcutta wins. We were the two winners in the Calcutta. And what's funny, the Calcutta, it was a massive undertaking to convince Rufus to do the Calcutta because he hadn't done the work to price the junk bets. And then he learned that no one else really prices the junk bets anyway. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> How was your open championship, Hi. Rufus? Um, you know, Harmon won and we had bets Harmon pre-tournament. So that was nice. However, would you have him at 125 to one or 150 to one or 175, 175. Wow. But, and actually then we took a little bit more, um, pre round three, but it was, it was a pretty bad Sunday aside from that. I mean, we were, I think we were up going into Sunday and ended up losing like despite Harvin winning, losing 300 grand. So that, that for the week, so that's not good. I mean, we also had our highest volume week ever. So it was, you know, when you bet more and things don't go your way, you lose more. Yeah. And in terms of the, what happened on Sunday, do you, do you feel like it was just variants where they're like, which, which golfers did, did, did you, did you dirty? Like Fitzpatrick, you know, finishing poorly was bad. Can't lay bogey in the last two was very bad is we had him against like speed. And I think we had, I think Fitz against speed. We had one of those guys against Wyndham Clark too. Um, I mean, we had like Richie Ram, like some guys did were further back kind of did crap that we wanted to do better and vice versa. Like Matthew Southgate played well, Richie Ramsey didn't um, just a lot of like, we had maybe I think 11 or 12 matchups that were still up for grabs and we were winning about half of them. And I think we going into the day and I think we won one out of 12. So it, it was just yeah. one, one of those, one of those days. It was, we, a whiffed, we whiffed on the like top X's aside from like Harmon winning. We had, you know, a lot of, we, we wanted Xander I'm trying to think who else we wanted up there, but Jordan Smith would have been nice. He he didn't. I mean, he wasn't really in contention for that, but he didn't play particularly well. I mean, Fitz was a tough one, right? Because obviously, I knew you were big on Fitz, and I had him in the Calcutta. That seventeenth hole on on uh, Saturday was painful. <laughs> Is it Saturday? Was it on, on, was it on Friday or Saturday? Friday? I can't remember Friday, which. One. Maybe. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah Friday, because I remember it made him and put him in jeopardy of missing the cut. Oh, we also had like 
you know, Kepka against Cam Smith and Cam Smith Eagles 18 and, and Kepka like made, I think a double bogey or triple bogey then. And going into that, it was like, okay, Kepka, Cam Smith needs to birdie to make the cut. And Kepka was it like, you know, even par one over or something like that. And then, uh, and then Smith goes on to, you know, Kepka sucks on the weekend and we lose that matchup, but it was, it was crazy how many big names almost didn't make the cut, right? Like, you know, Scheffler almost didn't Scheffler. make the cut. Rom almost Rom. didn't make the cut. And as like someone that didn't have any of those in the Calcutta, I was like hoping to God that I could just get rid of them. And it's funny because you would be like, oh, well, you know, they're not going to make much noise, but Rom it was so clustered though. Made, yeah. And the field was. was so, I mean, if you looked going into the weekend, basically aside from Harmon, like, I think, well, the second place was like four under five under that, at that point, but there was, I mean, three under was like third or fourth place and th- three over made the cut. So there was not a big gap at all there. And so you could like any of those guys going low could have, could have done some real damage. But uh, the other thing was on set, like Saturday, the forecast early was a little bit worse and it, it it ended up being a little bit i think the the very early tea times on saturday ended up being penalized a bit um it doesn't look like they were penalized as much relative to the later tea times given the fact that none of the leaders did much of anything but i don't think that was weather related the wind the wind died down and but those guys just didn't play well did do you have you kind of made fun of my Calcutta model saying like oh it's you know like short accurate blah blah do you think that there is macro um sort of macro assumptions going into a you know championship like that that get proven right or wrong meaning like was this a, a course that played out where driving distance wasn't as important as driving accuracy um etc i don't think it's as simple as that exactly because i mean like yes if you if if you miss if if you hit into fairway bunkers you were in trouble like that was that was a stroke without question but the correlation between being an accurate hitter and not doing that isn't a straight thing exactly and and if you look, I mean, you look at the top of the leaderboard and it wasn't like it was just a bunch of accuracy guys. I mean, Harmon, Harmon's a very accurate hitter off the tee. Um, he hits the ball very straight, not super long. Obviously he's like five foot three or something, but yeah. But then every once in a while, he'll just pull one out and drive it past people. And he's like, and then he does the too short thing. Like, you know, like when too small, like the basketball players, you're not, I mean, I I do I do think it did end up, I mean, overall though, I would say yes, accuracy ended up being more rewarded than length. I mean, just, I mean, look at the top of the leaderboard, Tom Kim, who can hit the ball further now, but you know, Straka Day, Rom, Grillo. Um, you, you, you obviously have some long hitters and I mean, just good ball strikers in general that are up there, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard. Yeah. All right. I don't. Well, I don't generally do a a post mortem on it like that. Maybe I should. Maybe. Did you have a tilted moment of the week? Did we you, haven't I done mean, a tilted we, moment in a while. The guy, the, the guy who was uh, winning after day one or tied for lead after day one was certainly not an accurate guy. No, not Crystal at all. Lamprecht. And that was that was proven out with us first yeah. <laughs> like seven or eight holes the next day. That was oh, crazy, man. by the way. 
he looked like some crazy wreck golfer the next day. Like he was yeah. like spraying the ball all over. Liter- didn't look. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> he wasn't very good. In the, but yeah. Well, okay. So what was your question? Tilted moment. Did you have a tilted moment during the open? I mean, maybe it was that, that, that Cam Smith moment. I know what my tilted moment was. There was a three on, on basically Sunday was kind of just a tilted morning when I was just like, I mean, maybe it was when I woke up at like, I don't know, 8.30 or 9 a.m. Sunday morning, Eastern time and like pulled up stuff. And I was like, okay, well, we're 0 and 5 on these matchups that I have to grade already that are already finished or basically done that were ones where we were winning two or three of them going in. And I was just like this and it was that was the start of a kind of a, a morning where things did not go our way. I, uh, on thir- a Thursday morning, Wednesday night, woke up at around, I didn't, I don't know, one, maybe 1230 one. And I was like, I'll check on what's going on. And I checked on it and I'm like, Oh, I'll, and then I was about to tweet out how annoyed I was that there was no way to watch the golf yet. And then I realized that there was, you could go on a peacock and the coverage is. was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. And so I turned peacock on and I started watching and then I was like, man, I should just go to bed. This is stupid. It's, it's the middle of the night. And then I'm like, wait a minute. This is like, I'm like watching golf and no one's bothering me. And I, so I basically pulled all nighters the first two nights to watch golf because it was just so enjoyable for me to like watch all this coverage in the peacefulness of, of, of uh, whatnot. But my tilted moments we had we had three like we had Terrell Hatton making nine on fifteen and a, and a in a you know in a, in a conditions where most people were making four right on that hole and so that was a five five uh, you know stroke swing on on uh, Friday he made oh I remember uh, that yeah yeah. Yeah, oh, he fun. made nine. He made nine on Friday on on eighteen, and then because yeah. he was at uh, minus two at that point, and I was like, oh, you know, this is great. Maybe he birdies this. He gets to three under. We're we're in reasonable shape. And then we had Fitzpatrick, uh, and then uh, doing what he did on seventeen, and then we had uh, Fleetwood on Sunday seventeen on, on seventeen Sunday. making six because that was, I mean, that's directly he was you know probably we could have like ended up t- second or third t2 t- yeah t2 to like all of a sudden now which in the what, calcutta eight? was pretty big uh, i mean he, he ended, he, yeah he, he ended he up bur- tied t- for 10th he he birdied the last one yeah though. he birdied he birdied 15 which which saved which salvaged it right but he, i mean he he 18 sorry but he he was like he had so many looks down the down the stretch to actually get into like second alone like he had so many eight nine footers that he missed um, this is Tommy Fleetwood on Sunday when he's in contention in general. I mean, is that just what he does? I mean, he's he's one of these guys that hasn't won. He never won on the PGA Tour, despite how you know being a really really solid player. When he goes low, it's always or when he gets these like second places, it's almost always going low from being further back, kind of the the back door. But it does seem like he doesn't putt well under pressure, and that's that was the knock on Tony Finau for a long time too. Now, when he was in contention on on Sunday, his putting would let him down. And I think it, in general, I think putting when you're in contention is much harder because it's 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 like a feel thing. I mean, Jeff, have you ever? I just know myself from golfing. When I feel pressure on a putt, it you you stop feeling it as much, and you you start thinking about it 
And yeah, that's like the whole conversation we had with Lou Stagner last week. You know, this idea of like your body, your physiology, just becoming like disconnected. And like you, I think that the, for me, this year, this year, you're going to laugh the the times in life that I felt the most pressure physically is when I'm playing pickup basketball and I have to shoot a free throw to get into a game that I really want to get in, meaning like the team that's coming on a quarter, like my friends or people that are good. And if I miss, I'm going to end up sitting another game and who knows who I'm going to be playing with. That's some of the most pressure. And I'm like a good free throw shooter and I can't shoot people, free throws in that situation. You shoot situation. free throws and pick up basketball? Yeah, to get whether to get into a game or not. Oh, oh okay. Like when there's like six people waiting for, for five spots. Yeah. It's like Jeff calls foul and then asks to shoot free throws and pick up basketball. Yeah. What? Six, six. Have you ever shot for to get into yes, a game? Yes, I have. Rufus? Yeah. I have. Okay. All right. Let's bring in Lou Payton and then Rufus and I will talk to you all again on the other side. We now welcome in pro punter Luke Payton. Patton. I it's I make a habit of not being able to pronounce people's names on this podcast. Um, I could easily ask someone off air. Is it Patton or Payton? Payton. Peyton, got it. No, so single. I'm surprised. Uh, no, well, single T. Come on. Yeah. Anyways, um, first off, tell us a little bit about yourself and and what makes you a pro punter. So, been in the industry for over 20 years now. Started off at Betfair, um, was at Betfair for almost nine years, and then made the leap into being a professional punter about 11 years ago now. Um, and still doing it ever since. Um, been doing stuff on Twitter for the last 15 or 16 months, which is how I get to be on this podcast. Well, your Twitter well, you're so is lucky. Your Twitter is is a must follow. It really is. And I feel like I've learned a ton from from it and from all your experience in the industry that you're so generously providing everybody. I think one thing I'll say is it is from a mainly from a UK perspective, um, but there's a lot of things in there that apply to anyone's sort of betting. Um, if you can read all 175 posts and not take something away from it, then I think you know you're probably a very very successful punter to be honest. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of content there, and that's why I actually did the website was just so it's easier for people to actually um access the different posts so they can go back and have a read through them i discovered the website last week when i was prepping when i thought we were going to have you on last week and and basically kind of just went through it and digested all of them and it was i mean it's 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 really great do you want to pick a couple favorites for him rufus that you like that you want to chat about well i think i mean i think the beauty of them is they cover all aspects of the sports betting industry and if if I told someone what I did for a living and they had no idea what, you know, they didn't understand the industry. I would say just read the, you know, read these threads and you'll get a pretty good sense of, of what this industry actually is like in all its warts. And so I think Jeff, it depends on what, what sort of Avenue do we want to start, start going down? I mean, I think maybe I want to start talking about the market because we've had a lot of conversations about the market and, and, you know, like you have, one uh your handle so we should tell people is is golf punter uh one right at at, yeah, uh, at golf punter one um but you you have a lot of statements about the market and respecting the market looking at things like betfair um to understand what the market's doing um but then you have 
a lit in your list of like hundred points or whatever you have, you have to think out of the box and go against the crowd. So what is the balance between respecting the market and understanding that a model or an edge may go against the market? I think the thing about respecting the market is, you know, is the amount, so it depends on what the market is. So it depends if it's golf or if it was say um, soccer, like a match odds market in soccer, or if it was, you know, a money line or in NFL is, is really appreciating just how much money and resources being put into those markets to get the lines where they are. And I don't think people really appreciate how difficult it is to actually move some of these markets. Golf's actually a little bit easier. And I'm sure, you know, Rufus obviously being on this call, he's someone who's able to move, you know, certainly the golf markets substantially. But certainly in some of the other sports, you know, it's very difficult to move the markets. And, you know, you just have to respect that if you're doing it on your own or if there's a couple of you, is that realistically, it's very difficult to um, beat those markets as they are, you know, is you, you don't have, you know, you're up against syndicates and you're up against some incredibly smart people around the world. And you just have to understand as to where you get your edge and, you know, how um, you have to understand how you get your edge and what the best way is for you to sort of proceed in terms of trying to get that edge because if you try and beat those markets close to the off the big ones you've got no chance that's interesting i mean i think that that market makers are clearly at i mean at a disadvantage in a lot of ways in the fact that they do have to their prices have to be really really good it's in a way that that's not the case for a better and we'll get into this what you wrote on sport trade and exchanges. Well, I'm, so, I'm, so I'm not sure they have to be as good as they used to be because the ability to um, restrict customers and things like that. So they don't have to be as as good at pricing as they used to be. But um, on the exchanges, the market even makers, the, even okay. So the market makers on the exchange is different, yeah. But I meant more bookmakers. They don't have to be anywhere near as good as they used to be in terms of their pricing. Because if there's anyone who's taking them to the cleaners, they can just restrict them. So their prices, you know, they don't have to spend nearly as much time pricing. And it's why they put them out to third parties. And they're very comfortable with that because, you know, they can just restrict and ban customers they don't want to take. On the exchanges themselves, the third part, so the market makers, you're just up against the best. That's what you have to sort of appreciate. And I think as a really good starting point for anyone is you have to respect the market. And if you're wildly out against the market, you have to find out why. And so I always find that if you're wildly out against the market, then you are probably in the wrong. Is um, th That would be the general point. You're not going to be so much better than what that market is. I think you can be quite wrong, but still be right in the sense that if you're directionally correct, that's kind of all you need to be. You're, 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 not, you're not booking numbers at your prices. You know, if you might have to to get the true price regress 90% to the market but but you're capitalizing on something that maybe the market makers aren't incorporating as much but you need to know what that is in terms of you have to i think you have to understand do you what the limitation i, I think it helps you in terms of because otherwise how how do you know you have an edge unless you so, just literally unless you literally well i mean you can, you can back test yeah 
So, okay. So my, my perspective, I came from this, like my start with sports betting modeling was my senior thesis, looking at psychological inefficiencies in the baseball betting market. And then I built a model, a predictive model itself. And I knew a lot of the edge came from sort of the, the fact that the books or the market was pricing the outcome rather than the process generating it in certain ways with um, defense, independent pitching theory. Um, but that kind of changed over time, but I knew that I st like, I knew that, you know, I should weight my number 45% and the closing number 55%. And, and like, there's like, when I'm building a model, there's so many little decisions made in, in that, that I can't say, Oh, my edge comes from the fact that I'm better quantifying uh, the bullpen fatigue or something like that. I feel like it's the edge. I, I would like to think, of, I think my edge comes from things. a lot of yeah. a lot of little things that just get added together. If you do every right, no, and I think that, I th I th and I think that is fair. But you know, but you're in that in itself. You're saying that your edge is coming from lots of small inefficiencies that you sort of see potentially in the market at the moment. So you might be better at you know accounting for the weather in golf. You might be better. You might have more data in the golf than others in terms of you know, where players may miss, you know, whatever the data is, it doesn't really matter. And it's accumulation, as you say, of those things. I mean, you, you're a big enough player in the market that you know that over a period of time that you clearly have an edge. I think most people struggle to know whether they have an edge in a market or not. Well, I, you know, it, there will be someday probably when I don't. So I just it's hope very that difficult. that's a long it's, way in the future. But it's quite difficult to know that. It, it normally gets expensive to find out that you don't have an edge in the market. It does. Have you have you had situations like that occur where you were in a particular market, you had an edge and you know, you lost it and if so like how did you identify that and how like how much time did it take? So I wouldn't say had the edge and then lost it. I would say one thing um we did was we tried and to bet MBA in running and it was a very difficult sport in terms of, you know, I've not grown up following NBA. NBA is something which I've sort of come to at a later date um, just because it was never on TV in the UK when um, we were younger. And so I think what ended up happening is, you, you know, using models in running, but what ends up happening is you don't quite appreciate some of the nuances that you certainly appreciate with golf or other sports that you're sort of betting on. And what ended up happening with the NBA certainly is you're placing these bets. You think, oh, I've got it in, you know, in placing good bets here. But the reality is time and time again, the market's going against you or what's actually happening on court is going against you because things like matchups and, you know, um, lineups and just just very small things that end up happening that keep going against you time and time and time again. And you, you get to a stage where you go, actually, I don't necessarily have an edge here at all. And I need to review what we're doing. And in the end, just stop doing it because it was ending up costing too much money. What about somebody like, let's say, right angle sports, um, where they kind of create their own closing line value. And I guess you could say the same for, for me in golf, where if you're having an influence on a market, you're, it looks like you're, you're, the market agrees with you, but that's 
you know, it's kind of artificial. So in that, are there different things you would look for in that case to try to so see? I, I think, I, I think golf is in particular a sport where, you know, I hear closing line value all the time. If you're not getting closing line value, you, you know, it's, you're not going to make it pay. Um, I think golf is one where the markets are influenced by a few big players, um, including yourself. But also one thing we see in England is it's massively influenced by tipsters and touts. You know, the, the more popular sort of newspaper or, or online journalists, you know, if they're tipping up a player, then, you know, the price will crash from 66s into, you know, 33s, 28s. And, you know, people think, oh, I have, you know, amazing CLV when the reality is you probably haven't. It's just because the weight of money, and particularly in golf with big prices as well, the books end up with very distorted, you know, positions. Um, so, yeah. Are they moving, are, are the tipsters moving things on exchanges too, like Matchbook? Yeah. So what, what ends up happening is on certainly early in the week, the liquidity is weak. So what you've one of the problems you've had is that the tips that certainly in the UK are moving to put their bets out earlier and earlier as the week goes on. So instead of being on a Wednesday where there's actually decent liquidity, is that went Tuesday. Now a lot of them are doing it Monday evening, where the the liabilities the bookmakers will take on them are tiny. And what you end up with is is people will you know smash the prices at the bookmakers, so they come down and then. Obviously, people then take some positions on the exchanges, knowing that they'll be able to hedge that those bets for free bets anyway, whether they like whether they like the bets or not. So you end up it massively distorts the exchange markets as well. Are most of these tipsters actually providing any value? The ones that are moving the line, because I actually read your thread about uh, about the tipsters and. It got me going down the rabbit hole of reading up on some of these um, these you know UK golf tipsters and reading some articles. It was it was quite fascinating actually. I th- I, you know, a couple of them are interesting in that you know they're clearly very knowledgeable and you know you have to respect their sort of judgment and opinions. The problem, as always, um, is that they're not actually placing any bets into these markets themselves. You know, they have no skin in the game and it feels a very sort of false economy when you have people, you know, claiming to be successful at gambling when they're not actually placing any bets themselves. They're not going through all the ups and downs that come with gambling. They're not having the problems of trying to get bets on account closures and, and everything else that goes with it. So it it feels almost a complete waste of time, to be honest. Well, I mean, Jeff agrees with you hundred percent on this and believes that, that if you're not betting, I mean, he doesn't even want to talk to you probably, but but there, I guess, is some accountability probably if they're posting everything and they have a win-loss record. I mean, they're not having to deal with the problems of getting limited or anything like that. But at the same time, their skin in the game is reputational. It is. Um, but one of the one of the, the real problems is is when you look at how the bookmakers, you know, how these websites. So if you take something like Sporting Life, which is who Ben Coley writes for, um, a lot of their revenues are generated from bookmakers and when those you know depending on what affiliate deals that they have with the bookmakers is a lot of their revenues are generated obviously from losing customers and the bigger the losers the more money they make so it's a really difficult um situation where in actual fact the performance of the 
tipster whilst it matters it's it's a weird situation in that obviously they individually want to be profitable but the company itself you know probably isn't that bothered if you know they're only breaking even or you know marginally good i mean it's classic misaligned incentives right i mean they they're getting paid for some you know and they benefit if they were doing too well then their sponsors wouldn't be happy because they'd be sending them more knowledgeable, profitable customers. I mean, I think this is the moral hazard of providing data um, or, or, you know, providing this kind of analytics type take or this information for sports betting and, and having the revenue models being associated with sports betting. I mean, we, on this podcast, one of the things I'm, I'm sort of proud of is that we've, we've over refused sponsorship from sports books themselves, knowing that that would be, like clearly misaligned incentives and, and, you know, the natural inclination is always to do that. To go back to the point Rufus was kind of like trying to make a joke about um, in his own way that around, you know, not me not wanting to talk to people that don't bet. I mean, I, I think it's not a crazy thing to say, like, I would only want to take betting advice or discuss betting advice from someone that actually bets. Right. It, it It's not that I don't think that there are people that don't bet that have, interesting takes on sports that might be useful for betting. But the minute they start to give me betting advice, I don't want to listen to them anymore because they're not actually like to take information about a sport and apply it to betting. That's my job. That's the job of someone who bets. That's not the job of someone who really knows football really well. That's why what's happening in the the U S right now in the media. and, And I know this is something you think a lot about the media um, is is bothersome, right? Because ultimately you have these media figures that have been commenting on sports for many, many years, but have never really bet starting to all of a sudden now try to take that institutional knowledge of a sport and turn it into betting advice, which is to me very problematic. Well, I think I think the thing people don't really understand is to be successful at betting is it's not just having sporting knowledge. It, it, you know, there's so many different facets to it to be successful. So you have to be incredibly disciplined. You have to be able to find an edge. And, you know, yeah, there's there's five or six really important different aspects to actually being successful. And and often what you see with the guys in the media is they may, ha- they may have one, one aspect of that where they're knowledgeable. How knowledgeable they are relatively, I, I often question. But, you know... A little bit of knowledge is very dangerous in their hands because betting is you need to be so much more rounded than that to be successful at it than just that little bit of knowledge you need to question things absolutely a lot of commentators don't i mean the the problem is one of of the problems i find with certainly with the media um at the moment is that and certainly with sports players and and managers and you know they'll often say things like well if you haven't played the sport then you know you know you can't question me or if you haven't you know been a manager how can you question the decisions that are being made and of, of course there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know but you know when I hear people like Laura Davis on our golf commentary at the weekend say things like Brian Harmon would much rather have a one-shot lead than a five-shot lead you know it just you just it loses any sort of credibility some of that argument you know some of them are very knowledgeable but there's plenty of them who have played at a very high level who aren't very knowledgeable and have no understanding of numbers and the analytics that go on behind the scenes 
And even, I mean, I don't know if, how much you heard the narrative on your broadcast over in the UK, but, but the narrative that Brian Harmon's mind races and they were all like, oh, his mind's racing now, blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's like, he made some comment about that. And now this is the whole story and, and, and a narrative on why he doesn't win more. But in many respects, I actually quite like it because, you know, it's those sort of media narratives that actually help you to try and get an edge at times, I often find, is I'm, I'm quite happy for them to talk about Rory being the, you know, literally the second coming of Tiger, you know, and go on and on and on about it, because people will bet that accordingly when it's clearly not the case. So I, so I think that's in the... I was going to say on the topic of aligned incentives, I know you have some strong views on regulators and especially regulators in the UK, as that's what you have experience with. Um, what, what do you think like the sports betting ecosystem can do to sort of more align to, to make the regulators actually do the job that I think we all want them to do. And that is like represent, be fair, be fair and impartial. So, I think in the UK, we're probably, we're on a, so one thing I'll say about the website is some of the things we talk about with the UK is stuff that we're experiencing at the moment that I think that America is going to experience in the coming months and years. So it's and a lot of it the, we're experiencing too. Uh, and ab- absolutely. So things like affordability and um, obviously restrictions and some, you know, some of these really sort of fundamental issues. Um, so where it gets really difficult is when um in terms of legislation is when governments get involved and government officials because one thing that's you know become very clear in recent months certainly in the uk is that obviously all the big bookmakers you know they have incredibly deep pockets and you know they have unbelievable access to you know in the uk in terms of mps um who actually decide some of the you know, laws that are going to be coming in. And it's very, very difficult to fight that. And one of the problems you have as a punter is nearly all of us are sort of individuals and you'll end up trying to fight against the big, you know, against the big corporations and whether it be government, whether it be the bookmaking fraternity. And honestly, I've almost, I'm losing hope that, you know, that will end up with a fair solution because what seems you know common sense seems to go out the window if i'm honest with some of this stuff and some of the stuff that is being talked about is crazy well this is i wonder if it's really different in other industries either i mean the more i read about other industries the more i realize like you have the exact same problems here i thought it was unique to to the industry i know but the you know humans are the same everywhere and I think that's, you know, it's one thing I always say about what you see in the news and the stories is that when you know an industry well, like gambling is, and you see how it's portrayed in the media and you see how the legislators react to it, is it really sort of worries you as to what else is going on in other sort of sectors, you know. Um, and I, I don't really quite, you know, so one thing certainly happening in the UK, there's, there's a new consumer forum, gambling consumer forum um, has just been set up. Hopefully, you know, that will get some traction in terms of trying to push back. I remember Captain Jack, he was trying to do something a couple of years ago um, in America in terms of this sort of stuff. But it's very, very difficult because you're against people with very, very deep pockets. And as 
you know, Jeff touched on earlier in terms of misaligned incentives. These guys are incentivized to have the rules exactly how they want them. And there's a lot of money at stake. So you've been very critical uh, in your recent tweet threads uh, of the current betting landscape. And you've gotten some pushback and a lot of people also really, really celebrating what you wrote. Uh, you, you say that bookmakers are, are disingenuous by selling the fact that everyone can bet when in reality they're limiting anybody who has you know, remotely a clue. And, and this is covering up their incompetence at actual bookmaking. But many people believe that, I guess professional bettors believe that there are betting opportunities precisely because of this, because of this business model. And so if, you, if we suddenly made bookmakers take bets from everybody or, or a, a certain minimum bet size or book two-way uh, markets on everything, um, if they were forced to do that, then suddenly we'd have a lot of circas, pinnacles, bet chrises, and which are harder to beat. And so there'd be fewer opportunities. So, so my question is, like, what to you does the ideal sports betting ecosystem look like? I guess with from the perspective of of someone betting for a living, but then also if you kind of can take a step back and say, okay, impartially, what would it look like? Okay, so different. So I think realistically, is you can ignore it as a pro punter. So I I don't honestly believe that you know the bookmakers necessarily owe you know, pro punters, you know, a living or anything like that. And my worry isn't necessarily about pro punters. Pro punters are always going to, you know, they will find a way to get on. It's just, it is getting harder and harder. Um, and my worry more is that you're going to lose an awful lot of people to the game of betting. And it then has knock-on consequences to even things like exchanges. If, you know, the number of stories I hear of people who are being restricted, who I know for a fact are never ever going to be long-term winners at gambling. They're not even going to be winners in the in the short term. And I think losing those people out of the industry is is such a it's such a lazy way for bookmakers to do things. And you have to really question some of the sort of algorithms that they're using in terms of identifying these types of customers and sort of weeding them out. And it is a lot of it is laziness. Um, yeah, it's just I, it, I often it exasperates me because you know as when I first sort of came into the game is if you had an account closed it was a real badge of honour, whereas now if you can't get an account closed you know you are truly terrible at this game. Now, now the skill is in essence doing what Jeff did so well at the blackjack table and appear like you're not winning, like not a winning player while being a winning player but it's very difficult to do. So let's, let's go back to this idea of, of, of market and, and edges and, and looking for um, ways to, to sort of find inefficiencies and find edges, you know, are the amount of opportunities to get edges diminishing or are they increasing? And like, what advice would you give to a smart, aspiring, um, you know, person who has analytical skills or data skills or has, you know, the natural inclination to be able to be an advantage player, what advice would you give them to, to look at, to look at, you know, creating their first model or their first strategy that has an edge? So 
I'd always say specialize in small sports and side markets. You know, that that is where, you know, the markets are clearly a lot softer, but it does come with a caveat. And that is that you will get restricted more quickly. And what you end up having to do is you have to try and find methods which you can scale. So there's no point having huge success in some of the smaller markets if you want a long-term sort of career in doing this you have to try and look for the bigger markets yes your margins will be significantly lower but that is what your aim I think has to be in terms of being able to get the volume on um not necessarily just for bookmakers but you have to, you have to give bookmakers action that they potentially would want certainly in the states but you have to try and look for success in the bigger markets long term that has to be your goal I think you know you can you can build a bankroll, you can have success and learn what you're doing in the smaller side markets, but your goals have to be, if you want to do this job properly, is you have to look for the big markets. And so with some of the smaller markets that are out there, like, is, is there a, is there sort of like a natural like way to, to go after a small market and test and then move into the bigger markets? And like people would tell you, I think that believe in the efficient markets that betting into these bigger markets is a fool's errand. So like how, what, what would you say to them? I guess when, when they would push back on you and say, that's terrible advice. Why would you want these guys to try to bet into these mature markets? So I think you have to be, again, you have to be quite clever in terms of say the mature markets in terms of what you may not wanting, what you might not want to do is, you know, it's pile into a football match 10 minutes before the off where the market's at its most efficient. So if you're going to play in the bigger markets, obviously the earlier you can play in those markets, the softer, the, you know, the, the softer those markets will potentially be. So one thing, you know, I have talked about in the blog is that I think it comes a time and a point where actually you're better off in terms of trying to find an edge, actually doing these things in running, where it's much harder for the bookmakers to model. And I think that you have a chance to, react to things that you're seeing you may see differently to how the bookmaker may see it whereas i think pre-off unless you're these days pretty much a syndicate or a massive player in the market like a rufus is i think the nearly all the big markets now are very very difficult to beat so you have to try and think of other ways to beat those markets and things like in running is definitely a way you can do that at the moment. Now that may change as time goes on and and you've already seen it, markets have become more and more efficient in running, but there's still edges to be had in those markets. So can we talk a little bit about then the in running, it's a good segue into the, you to talk a little bit about the Open Championship. You made a, a comment about um, betting the, the tournament pre-tournament and, you know, a course like this that we don't get to see played very often. You almost thought it was like a fool's errand to, to try to do that. And ultimately you want to see how the course is being played and use that. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about how that played out for you personally, as you looked at the open championship? Well, I think just to sort of put a bit of backstory to it is that, you know, something like um, the, the majors you talk. So LA country club last month, basically has had one major golf tournament, which was a team event, the Walker cup in you know in any in recent history so this week you know most of the open courses you're talking about a major every seven or eight nine ten years with the exception of st andrews 
and when you're seeing these you know in previous um form on these courses tends to be in very different conditions to what you may experience that week and so the thought process really behind it was that um and it tends to come through experiences the number of times over the years where and certainly this is more seven or eight years ago where you know you'd spend all week trying to find little nuggets of information about the course how it's actually playing and these sorts of things because there's always used to be nothing worse than spending an awful lot of time trying to find little nuggets here and there for the course then to play completely differently in reality to what you expected and one of the problems you have now is with certainly with fantasy sports is the number of people out there who are tipsters and fantasy sports experts who are looking for those little nuggets at the same time as you has gone through the roof in the last four or five years. And it, what it does is it makes it incredibly competitive to actually try and very difficult to actually find those little edges. So what you end up with is, I think that, you know, I think there's more chance of, I, I, I think there's more chance of being successful in, you know, certainly for the normal person of actually waiting a little bit to see how the course will play. So one of the problems you have is with pre-play and in-play is all the tipsters and everyone else is encouraging you to play pre-play as well. All the, all the information is we want you to play pre-play, take this price, take that price. And the reality is you can bet nowadays at any point within a golf tournament. So it might be after day one, it might be after day two, it could be halfway through day three. But what it does is it enables you to actually, so what we saw um, last week was that, you know, the course was playing fast and firm on Thursday. The bunkers were a nightmare. If you went in the bunkers, you were chipping out sideways. And it's something which we don't often see. And that was as expected. Obviously they changed it before the Friday round, but it was still fast and firm. Obviously the rain then came at the weekend and it completely changed the nature of the golf course. And the bunkers were effectively taken completely out of play pretty much, particularly the fairway bunkers. And by leaving it later and later, as you can actually see, you know, it's much easier for someone like a Harman to actually hold on to a lead when there's less trouble around because the fairway bunkers aren't in play as they were. Um, and what you end up with is the sort of variance on each hole is lessened when the conditions are soft like they were. Interesting. So, I kind of might have made the opposite conclusion on Harmon, just given that Harmon generally plays tougher courses better. And I think if he's just having to make pars, like, like that, I well, think, I think what in you, a better position. Whereas, like on Saturday, whenever he was going low, I was like, "This isn't good for Harmon." Like he just, I mean, this is this is not a quantitative take here. This is just my opinion, having watched a lot of golf. I think it's, I think by taking out the bunkers, which he was able to effectively do is on the Saturday is it's just so much harder for him to rack up the, obviously he's an incredibly straight hitter. So he was unlikely to be in as much trouble as some off the tee anyway. But what it did was, I think it limited the opportunities for him to rack up big numbers. And you even saw on the Saturday, um, Sorry, on the Sunday when he missed the green right, I think it was on four, I think it was. When he was in he the then, really thick stuff. In the really thick stuff, and he was able to chip onto the green. And because the greens are so much softer, he was able to leave himself, you know, an eight, nine foot putt, which he then hold. Uh, did he hold that one? I can't remember. No, he missed that one, I think. He missed that one. But, you know, it was the sort of thing where if the greens were firm, 
you know, he wouldn't have been able to get that within probably 30 feet of the hole. And it just, I think it just made it slightly easier for him in terms of that type of thing. I think what was interesting was obviously Ram went very low on the Saturday, um, but not many people did on the Sunday. You know, the condition, given it wasn't that windy on the Sunday, it wasn't, the weather wasn't as bad as what they were saying it was going to be. Nor was it Saturday afternoon, but and, and nobody went low or Saturday evening, I should say, your time. Um, but, but what but what you saw on over the weekend was the, the, certainly to so the forecast was obviously that the Saturday was going to be terrible and the Sunday was meant to be OK late. And that was the and what we saw in a different sport of cricket was obviously we have the ashes at the moment, England versus Australia. And you're talking about markets that have tens of millions of pounds in them. And it ended up effectively becoming a weather market. And this was just a few miles down the road from where the Open was being played. And even there, despite, you know, literally millions of pounds being bet on whether the match would be a draw and effectively weather bets, people were still unsure as to what the weather would be. And, you know, we saw that in terms of how it sort of played out on the Saturday and Sunday at Hoylake. It's incredible, certainly with open golf courses, how quickly the weather can change. And it makes a real difference. It does. And I mean, with the way we do weather, I mean, we see all these different models and all the different simulations of what the weather could be. And, and just the, I looked at, I have like a projection based on this, like what the projected weather effect is going to be, but then what that sort of variance is. And, and there was, I mean, I think the, the variance was just astronomical. Um, and so there, there was just a lot of different things that could have happened, but back but really quick, think, so, the, oh. so I was just, just going to say, but, but just by quickly, just by waiting until slightly later in the tournament is you get a much better idea, you know, despite there being uncertainty as to how some of that stuff plays out, because there's nothing worse, certainly in the open, more than almost any other tournament where the weather is wrong and you're on the wrong side of the draw with your outright selections and you have no chance. Well, I, so the point you made, that point, and then all, it relates to what you said about how uh, betting live instead of pre-tournament because of all these, you know, everybody's competing to find this information on how the course is going to play when you don't have a lot of actual data on that is, I mean, I've found that I've been very successful uh, betting pre-tournament for those types of events, basically by almost in essence, fading the narratives because I mean, they're generally not that data driven and, and people are kind of speculating. And if it moves the markets, it's, you know, I think they're wrong half the time. And, and also, I mean, also it's not oftentimes not information I really know how to quantify either. And so I don't really believe that other people, I don't want to, I mean, I don't believe other people are quantifying it very well um, if I can't figure out how to quantify it at all. So. So you, you find it easier on course. So you're saying you find it, you're more successful on events where there is no previous course form. I don't know if I'm more successful. I haven't actually run an analysis of that, but it, it, for example, I feel like I've done very well on live events and and it does feel like there have been some especially big weeks on events uh, where the course is being played for the first time. I think like Caves Valley, the first tournament there, um, I think might be the only one. Was that the one in, I don't know if that was the Baltimore one or the Delaware one, but. Uh, but I mean, so this, I, is, I think, this is kind of the, I think the it, this is kind Jeff, of. I think it comes from the fact that that I I can still have an idea of how it's going to play based on certain things, 
despite not having seen any shots played there. And so using the information I have and, and, you know, relating it to other courses and things like that, like I can have an educated opinion on it and, and, and I'm not trying to speculate based on things that I don't know that can potentially lead me astray, I guess. Well, this is like the classic, when I sat down and talked to Daryl Morey, one of the first times he had, previously been you know really interested in baseball as a sport to go after and that's where he kind of got his start and then he got into basketball and you know I asked him like why is basketball so interesting to you and he said at that time you know and obviously we've learned that this isn't that true but baseball he thought was like more much more solved, solved. than basketball and and because it was much more solved there was you know much less of an opportunity to create, um, edge or value, right. It's again, like, it's like, I might be the best blackjack player in the world, which I'm not, but let's say I was then, you know, the next best blackjack player would be like slightly, slightly worse than me. Right. And, and ultimately, you know, poker is much less solved. And so like when you have something that has a lot more uncertainty or a lot more opportunity to be solved, right. Like pre match versus in match. That's why I think the in match thing is interesting, what I was going to ask you a little bit about that, Luke, was just this idea, You what, what you see, how do you keep yourself like objective, data-driven, model-driven on something that you're seeing, which has so much subjectivity to it um, and p- potentially so much recency bias to it? Like, do you have a model in place that allows you to sort of, or even a mental model that allows you to understand, like you said something very simple, like, oh, this would make each hole have less variance. So therefore it would make coming back in a, you know, five or stroke, six stroke lead um, to be much less likely. Is, is that the kind of way that you process that information? I think every tournament is so unique, you know, you've got such a unique set of players and um, you know, the course is always playing so different, but I, I think, you know, so I do have a model that gives me, rough estimates what will happen if a player birdies a hole at this point problem with golf is obviously it's a very fluid situation where very often multiple things are happening on the course at any one time and the problem you always have is actually finding out in an appropriate time scale as to what is actually happening um so that i mean that's probably one of the hardest parts um I actually find that not having pre-off bets makes the in-play stuff a lot easier because there's nothing worse than trying to get involved with in-running bets if you already have a massive position that you don't necessarily like. So if, if say, your your outright position is just suddenly staring at a 30 or 40 grand loss, it actually makes, you know, your in-running, you have to be incredibly strong-minded to be able to, you know, go into a in running market on the on the golf and not let what's happened previously in the market affect you so i've actually found that since not doing pre-off betting the in running betting and and just taking positions as you see them now and trying to be as objective as possible and one of the things that's really hard is is to get rid of the biases that you you, you naturally have it's so difficult to try and get rid of those and the more model based stuff you can do brilliant um, but you still have these sort of tendencies for various biases. Rufus, you got anything left? Last question was, for Luke before we get him. I was going to ask Luke, what is, where do you think you find your edge? What, what skills 
slash approach do you have that that the market isn't properly incorporated? So, so I, th I think that, I mean, if we go back to, say, Scotland last week, uh, not last week, two weeks ago. So what you, what you find with the in-running is that prices will come into the market very quickly. And then obviously, it, it takes a little time for them to sort of settle down. So give you an idea. If we take the Rory situation with McIntyre, um, he just bogey, uh, just missed the birdie put on 16. At the time, you know, he's trading at one, uh, McIntyre's trading at 1.28. Now, what people aren't really appreciating, I don't think, was just how difficult the last two holes actually were. So I think on the 17th, um, four people all day had birdied it. I think on 18, two people had birdied it all day. I mean, and what actually happened, and it was quite unique, was that no, no other golf was going on the course that could affect it because McIntyre had finished. And so I remember taking 1.28 at the time thinking, That's a great obviously, bet. it's a great bet, right? Yeah. And then before Rory had hit his T-shirt on 17, the price had come into 1.18. And, you know, a lot of money was sort of matched between 1.28 and 1.18. And... You know, without a shot being hit, you're talking about a six percent difference between the winning possible, you know, the winning probabilities of McIntyre. And you know, you do very well to get a six percent edge on something, even pre-off. Um, obviously, you might be a bit different with your match bets, but it, you know, it's equivalent of someone backing something at um, eleven and you know, it coming into six or 5.5 it's that sort of movement and nothing's actually happened apart from the fact that you've been able to appreciate what's upcoming you know who's involved that the market obviously is going to um like rory so more money is going to come for rory people are always looking you know the bias is always that people are trying to catch up always people are very you know the favorites tend to be under bet you know and i speak to a lot of people who are successful at golf is it tend to back a lot of, you know, the favorites tend to be decent value, certainly in the last rounds. And, you know, so the sort of combination of factors and what you end up with is obviously McElroy went and birdied both. But the point more is that in those sorts of situations, it's identifying what, you know, and you, you talk about directional, getting bets directionally correct. You know, in that situation, I don't know exactly what price he's going to end up at what the exact price the market will settle at. But I know that 1.28 is the wrong price per se. I remember looking at, I was following, uh, I had a McElroy outright bet from pre-tournament and was looking at, I was curious what data golf made it with two holes to go. And they had Rory only at a 3.9% chance of winning, which I think is way low, but at the same time, that's so, I mean, it's so far off market, but probably, I mean, directionally correct off of what, what, you found it at Betfair. Yeah, it's obviously all those, you know, on, all my bets have been placed on Betfair in that situation. But yeah, so that's, that's it's, and it's accumulation of those sorts of things is, you know, when you've been doing it for a long time is you get a feel for, you know, and you have to do research in terms of understanding what holes are to come and how hard they're playing today, all these sorts of things. It's, you know, that's why I think in running is, there's still it's quite difficult to model in terms of for odds compilers and people putting money into markets and you're able to kind of take advantage of the things that maybe the the quantitative models aren't aren't looking at 
exactly well i think i think some of the you know I, i've certainly certainly the models, positions right yeah so I, I think certainly the models you know if, you, if you're not looking at how holes are playing that you're coming up then you don't have a model worth its, its salt if i'm honest but it's understanding also is how the public are going to be betting that so you know the public aren't really understanding i don't think just how hard those two final holes are and it just takes time for the pricing to filter through and actually be you know more realistic to what it was initially it's awesome that we're talking so much about a bet you ended up losing because it, gets, <laughs> it was a great idea bet. it gets the idea of it gets the idea of the process versus the outcome which we didn't even talk about the outcome for what the first 10 minutes we were in analyzing this and and for those of you guys that don't know rory did actually birdie those last two holes one with probably the best golf shot i've ever seen in my life i mean that's got to be pretty close to it right that that 200 yard three iron that he hit in there so um that's that's golf luke, betting <laughs> luke thanks for joining us um again anyone that wants to follow or see your work you're at uh pro what was it golf punter one at golf punter one um, yep. on twitter and uh really good follow really appreciate it would love to have you on again because there's we could probably go on forever oh, yeah. um, on some of the different things you've commented on. So thank you again for joining us. No worries. Thank you very much. And you can also find uh, all his threads on the site propunting.co.uk. There yep. you go. So that was our interview with Luke Payton. And uh, he's someone I've, I've uh, you know, kind of like, like admired from afar with all of his tweets and whatnot. I think, I think you have too. Um, you, not not for very long because he he kind of just burst onto the scene last year. I remember he was in that you know he was not someone I followed, but I I would see these threads they would be recommended to me or something, and and I always liked him. And then so of course I followed him. But he's I who, I, I who, thought that interview was fantastic, and I think his perspective is really interesting. If you had to follow one person who bets golf besides yourself and you had to follow them blindly, who would that person be? Follow them blindly, meaning that I would have to. For like, for one tournament, for one tournament, your model is broken and you have to bet because you're in a challenge with empire maker, let's say, and you have to like Uh figure out a way to get an edge. Who are you relying on to get that edge? I have no idea. I'm not going to answer that question. No. Why? Because I, I, I don't want like I don't want to tell people who are, other people are sharp. No, oh and I don't God. know. You're so that's the bigger thing. So I don't know. You're, you're so lame. I'd follow you're Dane so from the Calcutta. So no, but how, how do you feel now that you know that he doesn't model? He always has bets. Cam Smith, and Cam Smith always does well. So, except this yeah. tournament. Maybe you just follow Adam because Adam has all the inside information, right? Yeah. Where's maybe Logan? Um, I don't know, but Logan Logan wasn't in the Calcutta this time, so he's 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 done with us. It's fine. Uh, how was what did what did you think of the interview? I really enjoyed it. I could have talked to him for three hours, and who knows, maybe I will offline. But I, you know, I think his the way he approaches first off the way he approaches golf is definitely different. I mean, I'm I'm not attacking live markets as much. I am betting between rounds, but. But the way he kind of assesses qualitative information, I think, is 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 different than than I do. But I think it's he's found a a niche doing that. 
and clearly been very successful doing it. But the stuff that I was even more interested in was just his perspective on on the sports betting ecosystem and his experiences. Yeah. I think that's a lot of inside baseball talk, which is cool. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the 3M? No, I'm, I'm, you know, I wanted to take the week off, but I can't really take it off. So I kind of didn't even finish my projections until like last night, but I'm, uh, let's see. I think I like Matthew Neesmith at like a hundred to one. I think that, that there's your pick, but I'm looking forward to being mostly away from things the rest of the week, starting tomorrow as Tom and I are driving, uh, laboriously driving eight and a half hours tomorrow up to, up to Inverness, Nova Scotia. And Jeff, before you say, well, why don't you fly? It's, it is a really tough place to get to. You have to fly to Halifax and it's a three and a half hour drive from Halifax, but there's no direct flights from anywhere to Halifax, really. I'd well, have to like fly through Montreal, right? From like Montreal or Toronto, somewhere. From right. I don't know if there are any in the United States. How far does it take you to drive to Montreal from where you are right now? Oh, that would be like further than probably eight hours. It, that would be. It would. I mean, basically, if I wanted to fly, I'd have to. The fastest way would be to have two connections. And then I still have to drive three and a half hours. The other, the other thing I considered was taking the ferry, the cat from Bar Harbor to Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. But it turns out Yarmouth, Nova Scotia is six and a half hours drive from Cabot. And so we'd actually be, it would take way longer doing that than, than just driving. Does Cabot have, is there, there must be a private jet like airport near it, right? Not that I know of. I, I have not seen anything like that. I think that maybe this is why it's not as popular yet as Bandon. Also doesn't have as many courses, but I think at some point it's, you know, I, I'll put it this way. I'm glad I'm going, I'm getting the chance to go now before it becomes a, a much bigger thing. While it's still, yeah. still more pure, so to speak, before all the developments. Nice. How many strokes is uh, do you have to give Tom? I mean, does Tom have to give you? Um, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure the way we're doing things now has been basically if I win a match, then I get one let fewer stroke the next one, that type of thing, rather than just strictly off handicap. Um, yeah. although I, I've kind of lost track, but I absolutely crushed him the last time we played. I'm actually up a half a Peabody point. I think we'll probably just go into it even, I mean, his, his game's not in great shape right now relative to where it normally is. Um, neither is mine for that matter. So our expectations of our play are pretty low, but our expectations of our fun is very high. Um, this golf project that I'm doing, I've been lucky to talk to a bunch of our, our listeners. Um, it's pretty fun. Um, I've been interviewing a bunch of them. So shout out and thanks to all the what all the sevens, one of the sevens that I've talked to about golf, but we have a lot of golf people that listen to our podcast. So I think our next sponsorship should be some sort of golf sponsorship. So we'll work on that. I'd like that. So, uh, so, so Matt Neesmith, um, I think, I think we're going to have a Tony Finau bounce back. I think, I think Tony's going so? win this one. I don't know. Hopefully he, he, like he hasn't really been playing well in a little while. Has he? He hasn't. He hasn't. Um, I asked you about the the um, the sort of uh, your pricing on Rom for 
the open championship and you know you didn't you didn't like him at all given what the market liked would would he look a lot better now i assume after that performance at the open um probably he's not yeah. playing this week so i don't have a number for him but like it I, seemed like he played he pl- especially down the line he played well he just didn't make any putts like 18 i mean that 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 round four he could have he burned the edges of a lot of cups early on as someone that was rooting against him. I was really. Oh, was really I, I said, I, I literally, you saw, did you see that look on his face in the first hold, the determined look? And I was like, Oh God, we, we have, we have that Rom right now. Like we like Rom is in the zone. And so I kind of thought that he was going to maybe go low again, but I mean, Jeff, he, he putted well. I mean, he gained more than a stroke per round putting during the open. So I like that was, no, but I'm, I'm just saying on the, on the, on the, on day four, like the first, I don't know, six or seven holes, he had a bunch of like, yes. you know, they weren't, they weren't, yeah, easy they were all, all like were... 30 or 40 foot putts. Yeah, yeah no, but for he, sure. But they're all very was perfect. Close. Yeah. 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 If he had made them, he would have been, I mean, you can't say he was unlucky to miss them, but I'm, I'm it, not saying he was unlucky. I'm just saying like, he, played, like he, he was, played well. He was putting, he was putting those very confidently and it, in, if you were rooting against him, you were like, oh God, he's going to make everything. Cause he just seemed like he was. And Rory, Rory started that way, both on day three and day four, yep. and then just never did anything in the second, you know, on the back, on the back of those. So. That seems to happen to Rory a lot when he starts around really hot, he kind of can lose the momentum. It's almost like he starts thinking about it too much. The only time like so that I ever worried about, the only time I ever really worried about Harmon was that was 18 uh sorry on on the fourth day round four um on the fifth hole when he was in the bush and it it, it like really looked like rom was gonna birdie or rom had another look at a birdie the next hole i think and, and didn't make it so all right well um thanks for joining us i'm sad master i'm sad sad major season is over that was so much fun to to yeah. watch i guess for you it wasn't as much fun but <laughs> um it's still fun getting, to watch we're Harmon getting, win we're gonna get I mean, at the time i didn't know i didn't know how bad the damage was at the time so i probably would have enjoyed watching a lot less had i known how badly we did yeah you at least felt in your mind like you have Harmon, and that's something to root for so yeah i was like like tom and i were texting at one point he was like i'd buy out for at minus 100 for the week now and i was like later i was like i'd buy out for minus 150 and then he's like i'd buy out for minus 200 <laughs> as we (laughs) yeah that's terrible all right thanks for joining us everyone we'll talk to you guys all again next week starting in with football soon so um talk to you all again peabody rankings crunching all the numbers in the simulated system to break down the data analytically driven media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic the bottom line is watered down it seems like they don't get it puppeteers are but the engines running off of leaded none of it's organic it all sounds synthetic that's why i fucks with jeff ma and his dog rufus no locks of the year they just tell you what their truth is maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies get thinner give the information turn and losing betters into winners yeah, Home, Reppin' Ruckers, Jeff Ma, Rufus Peabody, crunching all the numbers, Massey Peabody rankings, we're looking for the edge, analytically driven, crunching all the numbers.